the more that we can frame psychedelics as these agents of connection uh, to really help revitalize community, I think the more resilience that this movement will have in the both short term, but also in the, in the long term. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome to episode 148 of the Biohacker Babes. My name's Lauren, tuning in from Maryland today and joined across the country by my beautiful sister, Renee. Hello from Las Vegas. How's it going? Hello. Going well. Happy to see you. You too, always. All right. So I just had my last third wave class today. Congrats. I can't believe this timing. We didn't plan that, right? No. And we booked this podcast two or three months ago. Yeah. Crazy timing. We're totally spoiling the introduction. We have an amazing guest for you today, Paul Austin, who is the creator of The Third Wave, which is an amazing resource website for all things plant medicine, but it's also the coaching certification program that I have been doing for the last six months, um, getting very close to graduation, and we just had our last class. So really excited to celebrate that today by talking to Paul I know we've been kind of dripping out some psychedelic plant medicine conversations over the last six months, but I've been waiting to bring him on to do like a deep dive and a really, really comprehensive view of what's happening in the space. It's really exciting. Yeah, it is really exciting. Here we are in 2022, having more and more conversations about it and I think today it was a great like 101 episode. He is such an excellent speaker and explains everything so well, like really what the third wave is, the differences between the doses. I get asked that all the time, like what's a micro, what's a macro, um, the museum dose that was new. I hadn't heard that before. So, Mm. um, I thought he just explained everything really well. And even like the legality of it, I think is so important to discuss and understand and, he is obviously staying really up to date on that. And so I appreciate his insight. And I think maybe we should have him back like every six months just to give us like an update because the, the yeah. space is changing really fast. I think where we are today is going to be totally different than 2024, for example. So yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed talking with him. He's great. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So a little bit more about Paul before we bring him on. Paul Austin is an entrepreneur, public speaker, and educator. He has founded two companies in the emerging psychedelic space, Third Wave and Synthesis. Within Third Wave, Paul leads his team in building an educational platform to ensure psychedelic substances become responsibly integrated into our cultural framework. Currently, Third Wave offers long-form psychedelic guides, online microdosing programs, and an industry-best network of clinics and retreat providers. In 2018, Paul co-founded Synthesis and led several high-dose psilocybin truffle retreats over the span of one year. When not leading retreats, Paul headed up branding, marketing, and public relations for Synthesis before stepping back to focus on third wave full-time. 
because of his pioneering work at the intersection of psychedelic use, personal transformation, and professional success, Paul has been featured in the BBC, Forbes, and Rolling Stone. Paul sees psychedelic use as a skill, one that becomes more refined as we explore the nuances of these awe-inspiring medicines and molecules. Learning how to hone this skill will be crucial in the story of the humanity's present future evolution. That is beautiful. So we're going to talk all about the first wave, second wave, third wave, and the third wave coaching program. So if you are a coach in any capacity, or even if you're not a coach and interested in being part of this third wave, you will learn more in this episode. And as always, if you have questions about it, please reach out to us. Great. Let's bring Paul on. Welcome, Paul, to the Biohacker Babes. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Renee. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to, to delve in today. Yeah. We are covering the country today. We have East Coast, Miami, Vegas. We're all over. We are all over. Yeah, you're covering the map. Maryland. It's, uh, it's a good, it's good. The three points, three directions. Yes. <laughs> oh, three. Very important. We're going to talk about that today. So thanks for mentioning that. Um, we've been waiting to do this conversation for almost a year now. I started studying under third wave last summer with the microdosing experience and then started the coaching certification. Ironically, we just had our last class today. What timing? So we have so much to talk about today. Luckily, our audience has been getting like some drippings of plant medicine, so they're no strangers to it. But I would love to really zoom out and just give a comprehensive look because there's so many applications here, so many talking points. And I think you're the man to lay it out for us and talk about third wave and your experience there, um, especially what the third wave is and why we need to kind of take a new look at what's happening in our culture and society. So I guess the biggest question to start is, what is the third wave? So, and and even to, to delve into that, I, I think storytelling is such a, a central part of it, right? Storytelling is so central to who we are as humans and who we've become as humans and even the role that plant medicine has played in those stories. And so my story, when it comes to the third wave, is I was living in Budapest. This was the summer of 2015, and uh, a couple friends were visiting, and we decided to take a not huge, huge amount of acid, but definitely more than a microdose of acid. And we went out into the hills of Budapest and the Danube uh, runs through Budapest. And so we were up in this hill overlooking the, the Danube and the beautiful architecture of Budapest, having this phenomenal acid experience and just sort of reflecting on um, where psychedelics were at that point in time. This is 2015, so almost seven years ago now. And at that point in time, uh, cannabis was... Uh, starting to come out of the the woodwork, more states were starting to legalize it. A lot of states had medicalized it. Uh, there was research coming out of Johns Hopkins and NYU, and uh, podcasters like Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and and a few others were just starting to have guests on who were speaking about some of the potential applications of of psychedelics. In fact, one of those guests was Dr. James Fadiman, who sort of helped to amplify microdosing as a thing. So after that acid experience that we were sharing in Budapest, I was reflecting on it with the, the two friends that I was with, and we were sort of trying to come up with a phrase or a term that would aptly describe the moment in time that we found ourselves in. And while in Budapest, not only were we dripping on acid, but we were also checking out local cafes. And in particular, we were going to these third wave coffee places. And third wave coffee is like artisanal coffee, right? Where you get a cappuccino with like a beautiful swan that's on top and the beans come from like a single origin farm in, 
Ethiopia, nice. that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're going to these third wave coffee places and we're, we're taking psychedelics and all of a sudden, like what emerged from our conversation is, wow, we're really living in this third wave of psychedelics. And I didn't like any sort of creative intuitive insight. I didn't immediately know what that meant, but something about it really stuck and landed. And so later that evening, I was reflecting on, upon the conversation and I'm, I'm a huge history nerd. I studied history in undergrad. Uh, I love, I love reading history. I love studying history. I love to learn about history. And so I was just thinking about it from a historical context. And all of a sudden it like came to me, you know, that this isn't the first time that we as humans have been working with psychedelics, that these are ancient tools that go back, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years even. And yet we find ourselves in this moment of time, this third wave of psychedelics, where we're essentially looking to find synergies between uh, the ancient ritualistic uses of these within typically a shamanistic container and the sort of cutting edge technology that modern life affords us to understand how we can use these with an incredible level of precision. And so that first wave of psychedelics then just to, to land this a little bit, that first wave of psychedelics being the use of ayahuasca in the Amazon, uh, which we have uh, archaeological evidence dating back at least a thousand years of, of ayahuasca being used. It's also the Eleusinian mysteries in, in ancient Greece, which both Plato and Aristotle participated in, uh, where they drank a beverage called kukion, uh, which is made from ergot, a fungus that grows in rye bread, the same thing that LSD is made from. Uh, and then there was also this thing called soma, which was written about in the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita uh, in ancient India, which was, they think, a psilocybin-like potion that was drank to, to, to see divinity, to experience divinity. So the use of psychedelics spans thousands of years across cultures, across civilizations, and they, they were always used as these tools to connect with, with the divine. And then the second wave of psychedelics, you know, the first wave of psychedelics, particularly within a Western context, lasted until about the, the time of the Roman Empire, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in 307 AD. The emperor at the time, basically Constantine, said, no more psychedelics, no more underground ceremonies, all of these are prohibited, all of these plant medicines you can't use anymore. And that was sort of the end of, at least from a Western context perspective, our use of these visionary plants. That was also when the mysteries were, were sort of cut down and, and eliminated. And so it didn't really come back onto the scene until the second wave of psychedelics, which was in the, the 1950s and 60s, that what we know today as the counterculture. And although most people are familiar with, you know, Timothy Leary and Richard Alper and, you know, the, the summer of love and the, the widespread use of high doses of acid, culturally, what most people don't know is that there were also over a thousand clinical papers published on the efficacy of LSD to treat anything from alcoholism to end-of-life anxiety to autism to depression to addiction, right? A vast range of clinical papers were published. But because it got so out of hand culturally, there was a major backlash from the Nixon administration and everything was shut down until the early 2000s when Johns Hopkins and NYU started to publish research on it. Uh, like I mentioned, these famous podcasters started to, to publish talks about it. And then particularly in 2018, when Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, was published, that's when sort of the whole, whole top came off. And now we're sitting in a moment in time where uh, people are really, really interested and curious about the, the utility of these substances. And yet, I think there's also a high level of sensitivity that we don't mistake that we don't repeat the same mistakes of the, the 50s and 60s. And so that was really where third wave came from. It's how do we, utilizing modern technology, how do we create the necessary structure, container, uh, context, 
So that way people can become informed and educated about psychedelics and then use them in the way that's not, that that's beneficial. And that's not necessarily to disassociate or sort of drop out from reality. Wow. Thank you for sharing that history. That's pretty incredible that they can trace it back so far. I think that's wild. So what do you think is the main thing that we need to be doing in the third wave to make sure it does continue to go in the right direction? So we already have a phenomenal foundation of research. And I think that's Mm -hmm. critical because research mitigates mainstream critique that these are just sort of things that the hippies do to have fun and go to raves, so to say. So there's been a very sort of conservative and cautious approach that's been taken by a lot of researchers to just focus on how do we prove the efficacy of psilocybin? How do we prove the efficacy of MDMA? How do we prove the efficacy of ketamine? How do we prove the efficacy of uh, ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, all of these, these psychedelics? So research matters. But like I said, we had a bunch of research in the 60s. Right? There were over a thousand clinical papers published. And a lot of the research that's done today is actually just replicating a lot of that research that was done in the 50s and 60s. So clearly that's not the only thing that's necessary. The, the other thing that's necessary is from, from, from my perspective is a cultural context for how we weave these powerful substances in to our lives. And what I mean by that is we really need to A, uh, become informed. And so there needs to be a certain level of psychedelic literacy is how I would frame it, that we need to have a certain level of education about, oh, this is what psilocybin mushrooms are, and this is what LSD is, and this is what MDMA is. And there's actually, these aren't just all psychedelics. I mean, they are, but MDMA is different than psilocybin, which is different than ayahuasca. So I think having some basic level of of discernment around these are these different medicines and these are these potential different use cases is, is layer one. I think layer two, if we're looking at cultural integration of psychedelics for this to be successful, is there needs to be a way for people who are new to this, people who don't, uh, who aren't necessarily involved in psychedelic research or going to a bunch of psychedelic meetups and conferences. Um, there needs to be a way for them to find trustworthy providers uh, because what's so central and essential to uh, beneficial psychedelic use is to do it with a guide, a sitter, a facilitator, a coach someone who can be there with you as you're often moving through some difficult and challenging uh, material. Because uh, there's often a lot of trauma that can come up when we're working with psychedelics, and that can be messy if we, don't, if, we, if we don't know how to deal with it, right? So I think the second core thing after literacy is ensuring that people can find and access reputable providers. And, and I, the reason I emphasize reputable is because there are, you know, in the sort of wild west of the psychedelic space right now, there are a lot of providers out there. And right now it's difficult, especially for those who aren't so familiar with the the space to have a discerning sort of, have an ability to discern who can I trust and who's maybe not so trustworthy. And that's why, you know, through Third Wave, we've we've built out this directory of vetted and and, um, trustworthy providers because we, we realize that it's irresponsible just to put anyone and everyone up in a directory because not anyone and everyone is ready and prepared to hold that space. And yet we do need to make sure that if someone is interested in finding a retreat, a clinic, a therapist, or a coach, that they can find that person to work with. So I think first is education, second is provider. And then the third thing is really building community around these substances, right? A lot of people talk about how psychedelics are ushering in a new mental health paradigm. 
And what that means is the old paradigm of, of mental health, uh, the old paradigm of healthcare in general is very atomized. It's very individualistic. It's very much, let's give you a pill. This is going to fix your issues. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know a, a magic pill for every ill, so to say. And what we're learning now is that is a fundamentally flawed uh, assumption and hypothesis that you can just give someone a pill and it's going to fix particularly a mental health issue. And what we're finding more and more is that what's central to the healing that psychedelics provide is the community and the bonds that often form uh, from these experiences. And so I think community needs to be emphasized first. Uh, ceremony uh, with uh, a community needs to be emphasized first. And that these are tools to connect, sure, to God and transcend and divinity, but these are also tools to connect with one another. And I think so many people are feeling the angst, the existential angst of, of that disconnection. And the more that we can frame psychedelics as these agents of connection uh, to really help revive, revitalize community, I think the more uh, resilience that this movement will have in the both short term, but also in the, in the long term. Yeah. Two things just came up for me in this biohacking space for Renee and I, we always joke like your biohacking shouldn't take you into a corner away from other people. You know, like there's so much biohacking, there's so many devices and strategies, protocols you can employ, but like if it's taking you out of connectedness or out of community, then what's the point? Like the whole point is to be driving us closer to each other, like having that connection. And so that's where like the preparation and integration is so important. And you didn't say that explicitly, but I know that's what you meant. And that's a huge part of third wave is that, these medicines are not the magic pill that you said. And I think in biohacking, a lot of people are, are still, even though they say they're not looking for a magic pill, like we all just want an easy way out. And they're not that. So the preparation and integration really creates this container so that we are looking in every part of our lives, like this framework of environment and um, nutrition is so important and movement, like these ancestral practices is not just about the medicine. You know, we can all just swallow a pill and hope for the best, but it's probably not going to produce the, the greatest outcome. So what would you say like preparation and integration in the larger context, how important is that? Or can you put like a percentage on the outcome compared to the actual medicine? Oh, yeah, we could talk through that a little bit. So, so the the way I love to look at psychedelics are as non-specific amplifiers, right? This is a phrase that comes from Stanislav Grof, who was one of the pioneers of LSD psychotherapy in the in the '60s, and went on later to invent holotropic breathwork. Um, and what that means essentially in being non-specific amplifiers is they will amplify whatever is internally going on inside of you, but also externally what is going on in your environment. And so that's why a lot of people who, uh, you know, they, you know, maybe when they were 19 or 20, they went to a rave, they did, they did a bunch of mushrooms, they had a really bad trip. And they're basically like, I never want to do that again because it was so harrowing, right? It was so horrifying and probably traumatic in that way. And yeah. that's because there was no attention paid to the preparation, the set and setting, uh, and even the integration. It was just seen as this sort of plaything. And what most people learn if they do enough psychedelics is that although these, these can inspire play and joy and beauty, that they do require a certain level of respect and reverence if you want your experiences to be productive in that way. And so this is what, what preparation does, right? Preparation prepares 
the body, it prepares the mind, it prepares the, the, the spirit, the soul to step into an experience, an experience of initiation, oftentimes an experience of transformation, right? And preparing oneself for that. I mean, it could be meditating, it could be, you know, eliminating social media for a week. It could, you know, in an ayahuasca dieta, it's often no alcohol, no caffeine, no sex, and no red meat, right? Just all these things that we normally look to for pleasure that gets cut out and we're forced to look inward. So that's often the focus of the preparation is to get you to go inwards, to get you to start to drop back into yourself and to drop out of all the noise that's going on externally. Uh, and then of course we have the experience itself. Um, and then we have, which we can go deeper into, but I think just in the, in the, in the context of keeping this to prep and integration, we have the experience itself, which is important and necessary, but then integration I would say is, you know, 80% of, of the actual tangible benefit that, that an individual might experience over the long term, because integration is essentially taking all of that material that came up uh, during the experience and, and really going and, and sitting with it and asking, how do I weave this insight back into my everyday life? Right? Because oftentimes, less, especially for those who are doing high doses of psychedelics for the, for the first time, there's going to be a lot of repressed emotion. There's going to be a lot of repressed memory. There's going to be a lot of just things that were kept below the surface and the subconscious and the unconscious that all of a sudden come to the surface. And so who you thought you were will may radically change before and after a psychedelic experience. So how do you integrate the, the, those new aspects of yourself, those new parts of your identity so you can come out into the world and be coherent in how you're moving and how you're moving out in the world? I mean... The, the, the basics of that is finding a coach, finding a therapist, finding a guide, finding someone who can help you, who can help to support you as you're moving back out into the world so you don't feel like you're a fucking mess because that can sometimes happen, but you feel like you have the space to sort of gel up again and, and refine your coherence and then go out into the world and integrate those insights. Otherwise, if you're just doing a bunch of mushrooms or going and doing ayahuasca, and you're not really taking the time to integrate what has come up, people just sort of go and dip back into the well again and again and again. And a lot of the same stuff will just come up again and again and again. And so that I think is part of the downside of psychedelics is that if one doesn't properly integrate, it can feel as if you're making progress, but really what you're just doing is getting high again and again and again, rather than taking that material and going, okay, now how do I fundamentally change and shift? And that I think is, is one thing to important, emphasize, to important to emphasize about psychedelics is they are agents of neuroplasticity. And so the psychedelic itself will certainly help you make those changes, right? The psychedelic itself make it easier to adapt to that new way of being. Microdosing is also a great tool to weave in in the integration phase to continue to keep that window of neuroplasticity open for longer. And at the end of the day, still, it's up to the individual to take agency over those changes and, and take responsibility for actually making uh, the changes that they, they want to see in their lives. Yeah, I can certainly see why integration is so important. <laughs> and I've even personally... I've been going through ketamine therapy for a couple months now. And I actually just paused about four weeks ago because I felt like I wasn't able to do all the other work to really integrate it into my life. I was like, I'm doing ketamine on a Tuesday and then I'm traveling Thursday to Monday and then I'm working and I'm doing this. I'm not getting the benefit, I think, because I'm not able to integrate. So I'm, I temporarily paused it. And 
for integration, are we talking more like a macro dose, mini dose, micro, not micro dose? Can you explain that? Yeah. So this comes under a framework that I like to refer to as like the skill of psychedelics. Cause I think so oftentimes people hear about psychedelics and they think of them as these esoteric compounds. Um, and they're a little bit hard to actually ground and, and sort of, Oh, like, how do I actually utilize these for, for tangible benefits? And so when it comes to like a microdose versus a mini dose versus even what I would call a museum dose to even a macro dose, right? Each one of those levels is going to have a different experience. A microdose is susceptible, right? You're not going to notice anything the day you do it, but if you microdose two or three times a week for let's say a period of a month, uh, you're going to notice changes over that month. Whereas you know, a museum dose. So let's say we're ta- if we're talking about psilocybin, a microdose is like 100 milligrams. A museum dose would be like 500 milligrams, and that's like a dose that you would take that is perceptible, but it's not uh, going to be visually changing your visual sphere. And that's a perfect dose to go out and experience music, or experience a museum, or experience nature because your senses are so much heightened. That's going to take a little bit more integration. Um, after that experience, maybe just some journaling and some reflection, but it's not going to be a ton of material that comes up because you're only slightly opening the crack, right? When we're talking about a microdose, which is more what I was referring to with the integration protocol, that's when sort of the bottom drops out. And then all of a sudden, all this stuff that you maybe hadn't faced before, you weren't aware of before comes to the surface. And that requires a lot of handholding. That requires a lot of support in that integration phase to ensure that it can be properly integrated. And those can be, you know, it's not, these aren't either or, right? Part of what I mentioned before is we can do a macrodose and then use microdosing to help that integration phase, right? Or people who are new to psychedelics, they may even decide to start with maybe more of a museum dose. So it's not as shattering to their identity and they could sort of take that in and slowly you know, go up. The, the phrase that I always use is start low and go slow, right? You can always take more. You can't take less. Mm-hmm. So it's good to titrate that and calibrate that until you feel, you feel like you have the support, you feel like you have the, the wherewithal, you feel like you have the courage to really go in and do uh, an ego-dissolving dose of, of psychedelic medicine. Hmm. Cool. Okay. What's up, biohackers? Did you know that there's actually one specific phase of sleep that almost everyone fails to get enough of? And this one phase of sleep is responsible for most of your body's daily rejuvenation, repair, helps control hunger hormones, weight loss hormones, also boosts our energy for the next day, and so much more. What is this magical phase we're talking about? This is deep sleep. We can track this on something like the Aura Ring or BioStrap or any of these other awesome devices. But the problem is if you don't get enough deep sleep, you'll probably struggle a lot with cravings, even slow metabolism, premature aging, a lot of other health conditions. But the big question is, why don't most people get enough of this really important phase of sleep? And a really big reason behind this is actually magnesium deficiency. Unfortunately, over 80% of the population is deficient in magnesium. There's a lot of reasons why that is, but we really want more magnesium because it's going to increase GABA, and this supports relaxation on a cellular level, and that is obviously really critical for sleep. But we also know that magnesium plays a key role in regulating your body's stress response system. So when people are deficient in magnesium, they might notice they have higher levels of anxiety and stress, which are going to obviously negatively impact sleep. So before you run out and buy a magnesium supplement off of the store shelf, 
you have to understand that most magnesium products on the market, they're either synthetic or they only have one or two forms of magnesium. And the reality is our body needs all seven forms of magnesium. That's really, really important. And that's why we really recommend the product from Bioptimizers. They created this magnesium product called Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven types of magnesium in it. It's really great if you take it before bed because it'll help relax you, get a really good deep, deep night of sleep, <laughs> and you'll wake up feeling refreshed and energized. So I think you'll start to notice the benefits of when you get this deep sleep. You'll notice it in all the different aspects of your health. And a bonus, we love the Bioptimizers always offers free shipping and this is wild. They offer a 365-day money-back guarantee on all their products. So if you try it and you hate it, you can send it back. So that's pretty impressive that they do that. We appreciate it. And then on top of that, you can also get 10% off the Magnesium Breakthrough. All you have to do is go to magbreakthrough.com slash biohackerbabes, and then you can use discount code biohackerbabes to get 10% off. We will throw that link and discount code in the show notes for today's episode so you can check it out there. All right. We hope you all have an amazing night of sleep. And for now, let's get back to the show. Can you speak broadly about the applications of this spectrum, like microdosing to macrodosing? You just mentioned, of course, we can do a little bit of both of what we want to ease the transition and the experience of comprehensive experience. But can you talk about like what kind of personality or something that like a goal someone's trying to achieve that they would go more towards microdosing versus macrodosing? Can you cover that spectrum? I know that's a rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to think about the simplest way to frame it just to be helpful. I think my sense is the higher doses are almost always healing in nature. And what I mean by that is they are inherently healing, not healing in like a natural environment, but they are inherently healing because on a very high dose of a psychedelic, the typical experience is what, would, what one would call a mystical experience. Right. And that's when you have this direct connection to divinity, to God, to source, to the unknown. And because basically all of us who have never done psychedelics before, we we've never had that experience because we don't have initiations in modern culture, right? We don't have a sort of container that's set aside for those experiences. And so when we experience the profundity and just the all everything that is uh, through that, it is almost always healing because what our soul craves is that unconditional love. And that's almost always what people experience when they have that quote unquote mystical experience. It's unconditional love. And so my sense is the macrodose is, is, is more for like the healing, the transcendence, right? The, the total shift of identity the, the, the dying of a certain identity and the rebirth of a new identity. And usually, you know, those are good experiences to have at the most once every three months. I would say once every six months is probably um, even better. Whereas the lower doses, the microdosing, the mini dosing, even the museum dosing, I see as better for improving performance, even though that's not the, the, the best word for it, but really improving our ability to navigate life and be more skillful and masterful at how we navigate life and existence. So a lot of people who are interested in microdosing are interested in, in, in accessing flow states uh, more on demand. A lot of people who are interested in microdosing are interested in the extroversion that comes 
from microdosing, being more articulate, being more sociable, being more extroverted, right? A lot of people who are interested in microdosing are interested in using microdosing as part of a meditation practice. Uh, so they can deepen their meditation. So they can go into deeper states with that synergistic combination of a microdose and meditation. So I would see microdosing more in the, the, the range of performance, creativity, leadership, right? I'm taking this, I have a core intention and I want to see that outcome. And I would see macrodosing more as a total surrender, transcendence, uh, healing uh, as a way that allows us to open up to the full immensity of everything that is. And then sort of the integration is how do we integrate all those new ways of being potentially with the help of something like microdosing, but also meditation, yoga, breath work, you know, hot, cold thermogenesis, neurofeedback, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but there are a lot of modalities that we can then use that help to regulate our nervous system after that high dose experience. That way we can continue to feel open and present and not be sort of stuck in all the, the chatter of our head. Yeah. Or like you said, feeling like a, a fucking mess. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you come out and yeah. you feel like you have all the answers. And a really important thing that I learned from you is you don't want to make any big life decisions for a couple of months after an experience like that, because it yeah. can be so revealing that you feel like oh, I'm just going to blow up my life and, and do something different. But that integration piece is going to ground you and come back to those core intentions. Can you explain that a little bit more? I mean, typically what, what I, this is what I've heard. And this is what I then will continue to teach and do myself is no major life decisions for at least one month after a high dose psychedelic experience. I can't tell you the number of times that someone goes and does ayahuasca in the journal or in the jungle and they quit their job, they divorce their spouse, they move to a new city. And it's like everything that their identity used to be, it's like a cord gets cut and they just want to totally restart from, from nothing. And I think in the, in the sort of mania of a post high dose psychedelic experience that can be enticing because you feel empowered and you feel like you can take on the world and do anything. But when the actual dust starts to settle, people often regret making those very sort of um, significant decisions in such a quick way. Mm -hmm. um, what I've often found is change is best when it's approached with a long-term mindset. And so, although there may be all these insights that come through with higher doses of psychedelics, so much of integration is how do I just take a little bit of that and just chew it off one day at a time, right? Like how I always talk about this 4% rule, right? We're not trying to do a 180 on our life. We're just every day trying to get a little bit better. The 4% rule, just challenge ourselves a little bit, stretch a little bit, push a little bit. But if we push and stretch too much, like a rubber band, that rubber band comes back and it can sometimes bite us in the ass. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be like too much hormesis, too much stress. Too much hormesis, right? It, it's, yeah. It, 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 um, yeah, it just ruins the, the structure that we've built for, for our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that 4% rule. And I can connect that even to someone changing their diet. You know, like I could write up this beautiful nutrition plan and say, okay, you're going to start it tomorrow. And that's not really going to work for maybe more than a couple of days versus maybe this week, all we do is eat one more vegetable than we did last week, right? Like, so 4% rule. I, I like that. That's sticking with me. Curious back to the macro dosing. Is there anyone that should not do this? So 
The biggest contraindication for psychedelic use is immaturity. That's what I heard a mentor of mine once say, that these are not substances and compounds to play around with. And then if you're not ready to confront and face some of the deepest parts of yourself, that wait until you're ready to do that. Now, this is particularly for high doses. Now, there are also, of course, medical things. Like if you're, if you're predisposed to psychosis, if you're predisposed to uh, personality disorders, if you have schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, or even bipolar, you have to be very, very careful, particularly with schizophrenia, with, with working with psychedelics, even at a microdose level. Um, I would say the other main contraindication is very compound specific. Meaning like if you're on SSRIs, you shouldn't do ayahuasca or MDMA. But if you're on SSRIs, you can do psilocybin mushrooms. Some of the contraindications that are very medicine specific rather than being more broad, the, the broadest one is immaturity and then uh, psychosis, schizophrenia. Like by no means ever do that. I would say even more nuanced than within, within this is like if you're going through a major life transition, if there's already a lot of things that are in upheaval, if you already feel like you're in a place of a lot of chaos, adding psychedelics to that mix is probably not going to be beneficial because what psychedelics do is they introduce more entropy, they introduce more chaos into the system. So if you're already feeling ungrounded, it's probably best not to go in and do a high dose. Microdosing could be helpful. Uh, in that way, right? To help ground you. Um, but macrodosing, best to wait, uh, I think, on that. Great. Makes sense. I have to say the immaturity thing definitely holds true. But my first, I would say, introduction to mushrooms, I was in Amsterdam in 2007. Thank goodness, for whatever reason, my intuition said, this is probably not the best time and place for you to do this. And I didn't do it. And looking back, I think it probably would have been a disaster at that age. I was maybe 19 at the time. And yeah. So thankful for my intuition. Yeah. Not (laughs) a time when intuition tends to be strong. So especially when you're in Amsterdam at the age of 19, you know, so too many poles. Yeah. Yeah. But that's helpful. And when do you think that this is going to be more widely available, legal? in the U S yeah. So what's the current legal framework? So you mentioned the Netherlands, Amsterdam, psilocybin truffles are currently legal there. In fact, in 2018, I started a legal psilocybin retreat called synthesis there where we built out the blueprint for legal psilocybin retreats. And that has now informed a lot of the policy that Oregon is developing specific to psilocybin. Uh, and so that's probably the next point is Oregon is legalized psilocybin. It will be available next year, 2023. So you'll be able to go to Oregon and you'll be able to get access to psilocybin at clinics and at retreat centers uh, in 2023. Will you need like um, some kind of medical diagnosis or anything, or you can just buy it the way you buy marijuana in Vegas? It's a little different. That is the model they have in the Netherlands. You can just go into a smart shop and buy the truffles, no problem. What they're doing in Oregon as part of the model is you have to buy it from a licensed provider. And that licensed provider can be medical or non-medical. So, and you don't need a medical condition to get it. You just need to buy it from someone and then, and then you have to work with that person to use it. So let's say you're interested in, use, in using it, you know, through our directory, you find a therapist in Oregon who you think is a good match. You reach out to that therapist. You ask, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm living in New York, but I'm really interested in doing psilocybin legally. Can we set a date and a time where I can come out and do a private guided ceremony with you? And that will be totally legal. 
right? Oh. So that, that model that Oregon is developing is now, there's a lot of states that are attempting to replicate it, including California, including Washington, including New York, I believe also maybe Massachusetts. And then there are a number of other states, Florida, Texas, Connecticut, that have introduced medical-specific bills. So people who do have a medical condition can get access to it as well. Um, so that's sort of the landscape of the United States. For the states, there have also been a number of cities that have decriminalized it. Detroit, Seattle, Oakland, Ann Arbor, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, Santa Cruz. There may be a handful of others. And what decriminalization just means is that it's the lowest priority for law enforcement. And so if you have your own personal stash of mushrooms, then no one's going to come after you. You can grow your own mushrooms. No one's going to care. You can do mushrooms yourself. No one's going to care. But if you start to sell mushrooms to people, then you know that's, that's, that's still technically illegal. So it's a much more sort of gray market, unregulated part. And that's why at Third Wave, what we've done is we've developed a mushroom grow kit. And so people can just, from our website, buy a mushroom grow kit. They can grow their own mushrooms. They can stay within the legal limitations in those cities and those states. And then it's, of course, up to them how they, how they, what they decide to do with those mushrooms. But I think that, that continues to be the focus, I would say, both with Third Wave, but even the broader, much of the, I would say, non-biotech, non-public companies in this space. They really want to support agency autonomy for people to have accessibility to this. And that is what's being baked into a lot of these emerging legal frameworks is accessibility. So I talked about the states, I talked about decrim in these cities. And then the last part to mention is FDA approval. So FDA approval, there are two main substances right now that are being brought through the FDA. There are a bunch of others, but it's too early on for all the others. The two main are MDMA for PTSD, and that's being done by the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also called MAPS, which is a nonprofit. And they think that will be available for prescription in 2024. It was initially 2022, then it was 2023. Now I think they've mentioned 2024. So it's so they hope 2024. And then psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression and major depressive disorder. And those trials are being led by two companies. One is a nonprofit, USONA, and the other is a for-profit biotech called Compass Pathways. And they expect that to be ready by 2024 to 2025. That will be through prescription. It will likely be, it will hopefully be covered by health insurance. And that will be specific for the clinical indications that they brought, that they've been brought through FDA trials for. So PTSD and depression, largely. Wow. That's really exciting. Hey, biohackers, quick interruption from today's show. I am holding my breath because I can't wait to share with you the new breathwork app I've been using called Othership. If you see me on Instagram yawning, shaking, and dancing in the grass in the mornings, well, that is my favorite Othership track to get my day started. We had the founder, Robbie Bent, on the podcast last year, but if you didn't catch that one, here's what you need to know. Othership is a new breathwork app that helps you take control of your day. You can naturally energize in the morning, kickstart productivity after lunch, or wind down at the end of the day and prepare for an amazing night of sleep. With their 500-plus music-driven guided breathwork classes, you really have endless options to meet your physiological needs and preferences. Classes range from over one minute to over an hour, so you can find what works best for you on any given day. 
I've tried a lot of breathwork apps, and I have to say, I usually find myself getting bored with most of the tracks. But with Othership, honestly, it is cool, it is sexy, it is scientific, it is all the things I have ever wanted in a breathwork practice, and it is here on the app. They're always uploading new tracks, so you will never, ever get bored. We are so grateful that our friends over at Othership have offered us a free 14-day trial so you can dive in and experience these amazing breathwork tracks for yourself. Come breathe with us over at othership.us backslash app. We have a link down in the show notes, so just scroll down so you can access those 14 days for free. I am so, so excited for you to all try it. Happy, happy breathing. Please let us know what you think. All right, that's all. Let's get back to the show. So my expectation would be by the end of 2025, more than half of the population of the United States or North America, the United States and Canada will have legal access to psychedelics in some way, shape or form. Wow. It's wow. really amazing that that access is growing so quickly. Um, I don't want to segue too much because I think that's going to be a whole part two, but where do you see this emergence with like the legalization changing and these patents and FDA approval and getting away from like the understanding and learning of these ancient practices and like the way these medicines used to be used? I think that like we could very easily bypass that. And I know that's a huge part of third wave is recognizing that they do have deep rooted traditions. Do you think, where do you see this all going wrong? And obviously that's a responsibility of us as coaches to educate, but any comments on that? So the challenge with a lot of the FDA approval process is they're, I mean, in essence, they're looking to pharmaceuticalize psychedelics. And as medicines, psychedelics are fundamentally different than conventional psychiatric medications, which the entire FDA approval process has been built around. And so there's, a, there's an attempt to stuff something which is so, so different into this sort of box. It's like stuffing a peg in a square hole or whatever, a peg in a round hole or a square peg in a round hole, whatever that, that yeah. is, right? It just, <laughs> it really doesn't work. And, and, and I think the, even the biotech companies that are starting to do this, they realize how expensive the approval process is to the FDA. They realize how much less impactful when you have to have strict clinical trials that a lot of these medicines are. It just isn't a real good model through which to introduce psychedelics. I think in the long term, we'll look back, let's say 20 years from now, and we'll be really grateful that all that energy had been put into FDA approval. But the fact is the vast majority of people will not be using the medicines that are approved by the FDA. Hmm. What I see is happening, and we're already noticing this, is the really the future is decentralization. So I often think about attractor points. Uh, one one um, one example of this is when Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were building Apple and Microsoft. The reason they were such visionary entrepreneurs is because they saw the attractor point of the digitization of society. They knew at some point, inevitably, society would become digitized, and that if they built products to support that, that they would become very successful companies. And so, a lot of the North Star that I point third wave towards is the future is decentralized. Um, meaning there's a lot more, there's a lot less hierarchy, there's a lot less bureaucracy, there's a lot le- less centralization. And the FDA is like centralized healthcare, it's centralized medicine. It's a huge federal yeah. government apparatus that these all have to go through. And what we're seeing as a counterpoint to that, with the future being decentralized, is we're seeing the relocalization of a lot of governance around psychedelics. So all these cities like Denver, Oakland, and Seattle decriminalizing plant medicines, all of these states starting to legalize psychedelics. And so my my bet 
is that the cities and states that are looking to decriminalize and regulate these plant medicines, those will be where the vast majority of people end up using these compounds for benefits. It will actually be the minority of people who use the FDA approval process just because it will be cumbersome. It will be way more expensive. It will be way more difficult. Uh, it's going to take a lot more money than people anticipate to actually get these through. And I think a lot more time. Again, right. I gave you these timelines of 2024, 2025. That's assuming we don't have a Republican run government. That's assuming that all of these other things happen. And there's just a lot of things that could go wrong which of course is the nature of centralized apparatuses is they're much more fragile. Uh, whereas these decentralized ways of being are much more adaptable. And so I think it will be much easier to weave psychedelics in through the, the decentralized models. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. So obviously as the accessibility increases, however many years that takes, which is an exciting time, we need more coaches and more people that can support us through this. And I think so it's great that you've created this coaching program. I'm curious, what was your personal motivation to do that? Did you just see that, that there's going to be a huge need coming soon? So, and Lauren is, is just finishing, I think you mentioned this earlier in the show, but she's just finishing up our, our second cohort. So we've done two cohorts now. We launched it about a year ago. And my observation of the space at large is that all of the training programs coming out were medical, clinical, and therapeutic. So a lot of the training programs were, how do we, what I would frame, how do we fix what's broken? Not how do we help people to really elevate to their full selves? And, and both are important. I'm not saying that psychedelics as therapeutic tools are not important. I'm just saying that there, there, there's, a, there's a significant, and there continues to be a significant imbalance in terms of how we're viewing the role of coaches and facilitators and guides and space holders in the space, I mean, how we're training them because they are largely focused if not explicitly focused on therapeutic outcomes. And yet the vast majority of people who use these substances will not necessarily do so for therapeutic outcomes. My sense is the vast majority of people who use these substances in the next three to five to seven years will be for the betterment of well people, which fits in well to the even the topic of the podcast in terms of biohacking, um, where there are a lot more people who are going to be interested in using microdosing and mini dosing and museum dosing and also macrodosing to elevate rather than fix. And the reason I think that's so essential is, is because you can't fix what's broken. You can only create a new system that replaces the outdated and obsolete system. So I, when I look at a lot of the therapeutic applications of psychedelics, it's a lot of people trying to fix healthcare. It's a lot of people trying to fix the mental health epidemic. You'll even see this language all over the place when it comes to psychedelics. There's a lot of people who are trying to fix this broken thing. And my whole perspective is that thing is broken. We don't need to fix it. Let's create an entirely new container for what healthcare even is, right? Let's create an entirely new container for what it means to have agency and autonomy over our bodies and how we want to live our lives, right? Let's create an entirely new container for what it means to actually heal where we're not just taking a magic pill, but we're slowly integrating behavioral changes that support and nourish us in the long run. And we're not just keep being kept sick by pharmaceutical companies and big agricultural companies and all these other sort of toxic companies that we've been conditioned to think are supporting us, but in fact are not. And so when it comes to our coaching program, I looked at all of that and I said, clearly the biggest gap then is how do we train not necessarily 
therapists and clinicians and psychologists and medical doctors. But instead, how do we train executive coaches, health and wellness coaches, life coaches, peak performance coaches, and even some clinicians who are very forward-thinking, clinicians and medical doctors who want to be at the forefront of this pioneering industry. And instead of teaching them how to soothe and how to fix and how to heal, let's talk about the whole continuum. How, yes, trauma is part of this, and there is certainly going to be healing as part of these experiences. And how do we keep the client, how do we keep the individual that we're working with focused on what it is that we're creating in the world? In other words, how do we integrate a creative orientation that is catalyzed through the work that we do with both the high doses of psychedelics and also the micro doses and mini doses? So oftentimes the way that I frame it is these high doses will help us to set that North Star. They'll help us to reset our compass, our direction of life of where we really want to go. And then the microdoses and the mini doses are sort of the lubricant. They're the accelerator on that path to make it easier to grow and adapt to the uncertainty of life as we stay focused on that thing that, that I want to create or that we are all creating. And I think this is the other central part of, of even our, our program is there are so many, I mean, broadly speaking people, but also specifically coaches and specifically people who are interested in psychedelics who feel as if they're going at it alone, who feel as if they're sort of isolated in their own container, who feel as if they want to do something that's really pioneering and courageous and interesting, but they're just not sure who else to link up with. And I think more than anything, that's what excites me so much about the coaching containers that we're building is we're really finding people, we're really creating community and bonds, which is why we have an awesome retreat as part of it, because that's, I think, so central to it. Um, we're really creating community and bonds so we can ask, what are we co-creating together? And how can we co-create this vision of this third wave of psychedelics, right? This cultural integration of these powerful medicines to help us to create new systems that evolve and grow beyond a lot of our sort of broken systems at this point in time. I have to say you have completely changed my idea of creativity in my life. Like it was, I would say in the forefront of my mind is something that I wanted to grow and re-experience or reinvest in. I feel like I, I lost a little bit of it from my childhood and through my 20s, I just was very serious in business. And so in my 30s, I've really been exploring this idea of creativity. But through the course and reading, my favorite book in the course was Fritz's book, Path of Least Resistance, this idea of creating a new solution rather than what you said, fixing the problem. And that's what clients come to us for, to fix a problem. And for me, I got into biohacking because I wanted to get out of my own way, reconnect to my intuition because there are creative solutions. And I think the co-creation is so, so empowering. And I just want to thank you. I think that retreat was so powerful in that way to realize that we are interconnected. We can't do it alone. And if we can embrace the power of, of the group, we just are so much more powerful. So it's like the getting out of the way, out of your own way, the intuition, and then co-creating with community is so essential. And then it almost doesn't matter if you have medicine or a supplement or biohacking toys, like those are the foundations. And I've just learned so much from the program from that, that I did not expect when I got into it, I was like, I'm going to heal mental wellness, but it's just so much bigger than that. So thank you. Yeah. Cause these are so much, thank you, Lauren. I appreciate your, 
Uh, I didn't pay her to do that. I just want to make sure that it's fully clear. <laughs> it was a great testimonial. Uh, <laughs> great. No, <laughs> I just, uh, totally unplanned and, and totally heartfelt. And, and I'm, I'm really grateful that, that you shared that. And I think, you know, it just speaks to like the traditional approach is to fix. The traditional approach is to react to external circumstances. The traditional way of being is to think that we don't have power. We don't have agency. We don't have that capacity to do something incredible. But when we're in a container with other people and we can all believe that and we can all work towards it and we can see how it's already happening and emerging, it's just it's it speaks to I think what what we want and desire on a human level, which is to be involved in creating really fun stuff that is meaningful for us as individuals and that is helpful for community for our friends for our parents for the world at large and it seems as if we've sort of landed on a sweet spot when it when it comes to that mm-hmm. that's great yeah. what you're building so how many coaches do you have now so the great question so the first cohort was 22 coaches the second cohort was around 31 coaches so we've trained about 50 coaches and that's always the way I like to do it is slowly kind of build up and then for this third cohort, which starts the the first week of July, it will be 50 coaches. Um, and that is about the, the ceiling. Uh, we'll not go beyond 50 coaches and we'll have two retreats. So 25 at one retreat, 25 at, at a second retreat. And the program is about six months in total. So we have three months of theory where we really delve into this skill of psychedelics uh, to help people master it themselves and really learn it. We then have the retreat and then we have a three month practicum where we're actually going out and applying this and then getting feedback and accountability from our faculty throughout the entire process. And I think that's, that's the other thing is like a lot of people, when they think of psychedelics and mental health, right. They don't recognize that there's a lot of people who came from a clinical background or who have clinical credentials, like even Amy, who is our, our, our coach in today's program, is a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. She was a healer for 10 years and then realized she could have way more impact by moving into becoming an executive coach, right? And so we have a lot of the faculty in the program who have rigorous clinical credentials and background, and they're now moving into performance and leadership and awareness and again, I think that speaks to like, this isn't either or, this isn't either performance or healing. We have to do both. It's always a both and, and it just depends on like where we're at as our journey and where our clients are at in their journey in terms of where and how we're guiding them. And that, that nuance, that personalization is so important because it isn't a one size fits all. You know, and this is what we continue to talk about in today's conversation, right? The industrial system that most of us have grown up and lived in says, take this amount of Prozac, boom, you're good. But what we know through biohacking is everyone is unique. And that I think is why it's so important to have a coach when you're working with psychedelics, because what's going to be best for you as a client is going to be different than the other client and the other client and the other client. So coaching is always about context and there is no prescription. There is no one size fits all. And I think that more than anything is the nuance that gets fleshed out in our program. It's how can you as a coach really land on what is your framework? What is your program? And based on the context in which you are, how can you make the decision that's going to be best for the person that you're working with? 
Yeah, I think that's so important because I even have clients that are like, I want to get into microdosing. How much do I do? You know, what what's what do I Google? Can I Google just like a standard recommendation? So I appreciate that you say <laughs> it's got to be personal. Got to be but, personal. Yeah, people want like an ABC Monday to Friday schedule. Always looking for the easy way. <laughs> right? Yeah. Not a lot. Well, thank you for creating that container and for creating this school. Some amazing people that I've met in the program, and I'm really excited for you to keep growing it. So can you just do a quick recap about the next cohort? If anyone's interested, what do they need to know? So the next cohort starts July 7th is their orientation. July 13th is their first class. Um, It's a a six-month program. If people are interested in it, um, just reach out to us. You can reach me on Instagram at paulaustin3w. Or just reach out to our to our support. Uh, you can probably drop a link in the show notes, but it's mm-hmm. the thirdwave.co forward slash coaching dash certification. So just or just Google third wave coaching certification and all those details will come up. I think again, what I love most is the retreat. Three months of virtual training before the retreat, the six-day retreat in Costa Rica, and then three months of virtual training after. And that's the that's the program. Awesome. Great. All right, Paul, before we let you go, we want to ask for one final piece of advice, something that our audience can start doing today to optimize health, wellness, spirituality, anything that comes to mind. I mean, this is kind of simple and basic, but to be able to sit down and be still and silent for 20 minutes on a cushion and just listen to the breath go in and out, my foundational habit is still mindfulness meditation every day. Uh, it's where I can find some stillness. So after they get done listening to this podcast, maybe take a microdose if that's something that's accessible for them. Sit on a cushion and just be there and be quiet and still with their thoughts and emotions. I think that's that's the original uh, uh, drug. That's the original medicine, so to say. Um, so that would be my that would be my invitation. Perfect. We love simple. Thank simple you. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. This is so good. Thank you, Lauren and Renee, for having me on Biohacking Babes. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was awesome. And hopefully we can have you back because this is scratching the surface. So thanks for today. And love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast. Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.